The Charles Adler Show starts now. So I've been looking forward to talking to Dr. Brian Goldman for a long time. He's an emergency medicine specialist. He's with the Sinai Health System for those who haven't lived in Toronto for a long time. Like yours truly, uh, used to be known as the Mount Sinai Hospital. He hosts a CBC radio show, also a CBC uh, podcast called The Dose. Uh, White Coat Black Art is the name of his CBC radio show. Dr. Goldman's new book is The Power of Teamwork, a bestseller, of course, in Canada. And his Twitter handle, I love this. I've been following him on Twitter for quite a while. Night Shift MD. Night Shift MD. And we're about to talk about the Nobel Prize in, in medicine. But before we do anything else, Dr. Goldman, it's great to have you here on the Charles Adler Show. It is great to finally be on the Charles Adler Show with you, Charles Adler. All right. Thank you very much. So the 2023 Nobel Prize in physiology slash medicine announced this week, awarded to Katalin Carrico and Drew Weissman, Katalin Carrico and and Weissman, they're both uh, Americans. Uh, she happens to be uh, Hungarian-born. They are getting the prize for their discoveries concerning nucleoside base modifications. We'll get an explanation from you, Dr. Goldman, what that means. But uh, essentially modifying uh, the technology that was already available to develop uh, effective mRNA vaccines against uh, COVID-19. I know you've got a personal connection to this because you've been a, a COVID sufferer. But before we do any of that, nucleoside modifications, what does that mean? Basically, what they have done is found a, a, an elegant way to, to get uh, the body uh, to, to inject a substance which, instead of being the virus particle, inactivated virus particle that, that gets the immune system to, to, uh, to develop antibodies against it, which is the usual way for making vaccines. What they do is uh, they, they uh, provide a, a strand of, of, of uh, viral uh, mRNA, messenger RNA, which goes into human cells and teaches those human cells how to make the virus particle that uh, that the immune system can then develop antibodies against, or T cells can be worked up uh, to attack, uh, and it's just a cleaner, more elegant way of of getting the immune system to crank out antibodies or 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 crank up the immune system to fight uh, viruses, including COVID. It works splendidly well for 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 coronaviruses. In fact, it was developed for coronaviruses, but the technology can be used for flu viruses. It can be used. Uh, for ultimately, I hope for cold uh, viruses and all kinds of other infectious diseases, which makes this discovery transcendent enough to deserve a Nobel Prize. Is is this elegant uh, process that you're talking about? Is that what has created the rather inelegant criticism uh, that the fact that they weren't doing what they generally do? You mentioned uh, injecting pieces of virus, but they were essentially getting the cells to do something differently, which is what created the immunity. Is, is, is that what, in your opinion, has made it such a big fat target for the, uh, the anti-vax crowd? So, you know, the answer is yes, but I think there's two things that, that happened. Uh, you're absolutely right. There was something about injecting a strand of mRNA that, that uh, turned into the myth that somehow your genome, the human genome, was going to be transformed. It's not. What they're doing is injecting a substance which goes into cells 
and then the cells make the protein and and eventually uh you know that gets that gets that fires up the immune system it doesn't transform your dna it has nothing to do with dna because it's rna so it can't possibly change your dna but that became the excuse oh that that's what they're doing in fact it's a it, what they're sending is a radio transmitter that will allow uh, you know, the, these vaccines are going to allow me to be tracked. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> I need to ask you, I need to ask you this because oftentimes the way to, the, the way to destroy a, a sort of non-argument is to, is to posit the scenario. I, a lot of scientists, I don't think, have the creativity to do this, but I know that you as a, as a public communicator uh, can do this, Dr. Goldman. Let's just give the devil his due, Okay. If the human gene, if the human genome were altered in some way by this mRNA vaccine, what would happen to us as human beings if the human genome was actually altered? Which, of course, is their allegation. Uh, probably nothing, because we have a, a whole bunch of defensive mechanisms that prevent that from happening. So that that actually work against it. From but I've got going for the nightmare scenario here. If the human would, would, would we not all turn into, um, would we not have multiple problems, uh, I- including uh, the uh, possible uh, destruction of our organs if our human genomes were actually altered and if there was some sort of chaos created in our gene structure by, by this vaccine or, or anything else? Oh, I, I doubt that would happen. I think what, you know, what would be more plausible is that we would develop a superior ability to fight off infections. Really? Okay. All right. All right. I was just, I was just thinking, when, when, I first, when I first heard them say that this is gene therapy and it's altering uh, the actual human genome, I just thought that was a, a, a kind of a sci-fi like nightmare scenario that wasn't taking place. Yeah, but you know, DNA and RNA are apples and oranges, and, okay. and and so so you're not going to affect the orange grove with 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 that. Right, you're focusing on the RNA, and I, I guess what I'm saying is, their their, their implication was that our D, our actual DNA. I should have phrased it differently in my question to you. the The allegation was that our DNA was being altered. That's my that that's is my point. That is absolutely correct. There was another there was another issue that I think was more important and more plausible. And that was that the vaccines for coronavirus for COVID had been developed with lightning speed too fast to have been properly tested. Uh, the development was so fast that it might that that in itself might trigger a nightmare scenario. And the point uh, if you if you look at at uh, Catalin Carico, she's been working on mRNA vaccines for over 20 years. So this was this was an overnight sensation that was 20 years in the making. And, and I guess that's the only point that I think is I think people should be reassured that that this this technology didn't develop overnight. It, it developed over 20 years. I think what freaked some people out is that they felt that uh, at, at first there were predictions that it might take us several years to get a vaccine. Then it happened quickly. The manufacturing process was very quick. And that made people think, oh, my goodness, uh, this thing is is just off the shelf. It hasn't even been tested yet. And of course, in order to get it into the bloodstreams, literally the bloodstreams of the population, for a while, I guess uh, it was called experimental. And that word, too, um, makes people think of all sorts of sci-fi scenarios. Is that right? Yeah, I think that, that, that it's fair to say that. But, but in the same way, at this point, 
uh, an annual flu shot is 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 as experimental as a, as a bivalent vaccine for uh, for COVID these days. Why was there uh, the mRNA technology that uh, the scientists were working on uh, that had been around for a, a, a couple of decades? Why had it been around? What what disease? What medical situation created the impetus to create mRNA technology in the first place? The first one we know uh, very well in Canada, and that is SARS-CoV-1. You recall SARS. Uh, I was practicing in Toronto. Uh, Toronto was, and to a lesser extent, Vancouver, were the, were the, the epicenters for, for SARS in Canada in, in 2002. Uh, and uh, about 43 people or so, as I recall, lost their lives. The vast majority were healthcare workers who were exposed to to SARS uh, while caring for patients. And, uh, you know, that was the first time and place where we learned to suit up with those hazmat suits that we wear uh, when we are resuscitating patients, when we're uh, intubating them and working on their on their airways. That was that was the first uh, infection that I can recall where, you know, it was coronaviruses that people were working on. Uh, for which people were working on mRNA vaccines. Dr. Goldman, uh, we'll, we'll talk about your own experience with COVID in a moment, but I just want to ask, uh, going back a couple of years now, were you, like so many of us, naive, uh, believing that 99% uh, of humanity, no problem in our own country, would be taking this vaccine? Uh, when I say naive, naive in, in thinking that there, there couldn't possibly be a, a serious movement with, with, with maybe hundreds of thousands of people refusing to do this in the, name of, in the name of bodily autonomy and all sorts of other doctrines that were espoused? I, I, I would say I wasn't completely naive. I was well aware of the uh, chaos that was created by the uh, Andrew Wakefield paper uh, that, that falsely claimed that MMR vaccine uh, could cause autism. And, and uh, it turned out that the paper was fraudulent. It wasn't just incorrect, it was fraudulent, that the data had been fudged in a, in a way that, uh, that, that made it seem as if, as if autism was a plausible outcome of, uh, of MMR vaccine. And I had seen uh, parents uh, being hesitant to vaccinate their kids. And, and we had already started to see in other countries you know, places like Ukraine and, and, and elsewhere, Southeast Asia, outbreaks of measles, which we thought had been all, which had been all but eradicated from the earth. So, so it, to me, it was plausible that it could happen, but the scale, uh, I don't think anybody imagined it was, it would be, I thought people would be, you know, like most scientists, most doctors would be really grateful to have a, a weapon against uh, COVID. Uh, I remember, you know, in, in March of 2020, um, there was nothing, you know, we had, we had, a, you know, we had some anecdotal evidence for certain kinds of treatment, not ivermectin. Uh, and, uh, and uh, we were terrified that people my age, uh, you know, physicians, my age, uh, nurses, other healthcare providers would get COVID and die of it. And, and uh, so, so that's, and so, so in that context, we thought a vaccine would be readily accepted. And it was, for a lot of people, uh, but the scale of, of vaccine hesitation and vaccine refusal, and even today we have lots of Canadians who've had two shots and not another one, please. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that's a manifestation of the same issue on a much larger scale. So you're absolutely right about that. I, don't, I didn't imagine this would happen. So the reason I was so worried about uh, the hesitation and the, 
and the refusal and all of the anti-pharma uh, propaganda and the other propaganda, the Bill Gates conspiracies and whatever. The reason I was worried about that is because I made an assumption that unless we had a big buy-in, unless more than 9 out of 10 people got this vaccine, all of us uh, would be very, very vulnerable because the pandemic would stick around for a long time and you'd constantly get mutations and then it wouldn't matter how many of us were taking the vaccines. Um, there, were, there, were, there was just because of lack of buy-in, the, the epidemic or pandemic w would never end. Was that one of your concerns, Dr. Goldman? Yes, it was. And, and you know, when, you, when we start off with a new pandemic or epidemic, in this case, a pandemic, you know, a, a global pandemic, you don't know how it's going to behave. Uh, and what we didn't know at the time, we know now, and I guess in retrospect, is that the virus is transforming itself endlessly. And, and that means it's continuously circulating and recirculating with new and new strains. We've got new ones, one's called Corolla right now. Uh, there, there's a few others that are considered uh, variants of concern, subvariants of concern. And when you have that, it's behaving more like the flu. So, so if, if your paradigm is polio, get vaccinated against polio, one and done, or get your series and you're done, then you're going to be very disappointed if you have to, if it's more like the flu, like seasonal flu, and you have to keep getting uh, boosters uh, to, to, to boost your immunity. And so, and so the new paradigm is that COVID is like the flu, which means you're probably going to need an annual shot to get increased protection. It won't be lifelong protection. But you'll get you'll get increased protection, and it will it will almost certainly keep you from dying of of COVID. But do we have a, a similar scenario now that if we don't have a big enough buy-in uh, for the annual booster, that uh, the, the pandemic will will grow and be more threatening? Is that is that the case right now? I think that that is less of a concern than your personal protection. You're, so these days you're doing it more for yourself. You're not doing it to reduce the amount of of uh, COVID uh, circulating because uh, it is very clever. It's, it's, you know, and, and, you know, we think that vaccines are, the COVID vaccines are excellent at reducing the complications of COVID, but not as good at preventing the spread of COVID. So that paradigm that you've talked about, that you need 95% of the population vaccinated, which you do for measles or, or for whooping cough, mumps, et cetera, the other childhood diseases, does not seem to apply with COVID. And, and we really didn't know that at the beginning. The, the hope was that that would be the case, but it wasn't. So is that one of the problems that for so many of us who were fighting the, the anti-vax drought, we were saying, uh, you know, we grew up uh, getting all sorts of vaccinations and that's why we don't have to worry about uh, polio. And the polio is the one that stands out for a lot of us who were around in the 50s and 60s. Uh, in, in North America, I realize that, that polio has been a problem in, in some parts of the developing world and still is. But I'm giving you the, the North American context here. Because the pushback on it, Dr. Goldman, always was, well, yeah, but it, how, Chuck, it's, it's apples and oranges. You got your, your polio shot and others got their polio shots. And we've basically eradicated polio in the developed world. But it, it's obvious that the vaccine is not eliminating COVID. You say it's uh, perhaps mitigating symptoms, but how can you compare it to polio, uh, the polio vaccine? No, I don't think you can anymore. I, I think it's a completely different paradigm. And uh, so, as I said, I think it's much closer to the flu, to the seasonal flu. And, and, and uh, the, the only difference between seasonal flu and COVID right now is that the death rate from COVID is much higher than the death rate from seasonal flu. And, and so it, it is a serious concern, particularly if you're frail, if you live in long-term care, 
my sister passed away. Uh, you know, she had she had young onset dementia, and and for her, getting COVID was the last straw last December, and she passed away in January. And and a lot of seniors uh, are, are, are will, will come to the same fate unless they're vaccinated. And if they're vaccinated, then then they are. Uh, uh, then, then they're then they're more likely to survive an episode of COVID and and less likely to be hospitalized if you happen to be living in the community. So I live in a community with a sizable seniors uh, demographic, and uh, some have asked me to ask someone uh, of your caliber this question: If and they all remember polio, of course. If we can develop a vaccine that virtually eliminates polio, why can't we do one for COVID and? Do you think that might be in the pipeline as we speak? Yes, the answer is uh, what well, we can, and and it is in the pipeline. There is the, the the problem, the challenge with with COVID, is that the spike protein and and some of the other identifying features on on the spike protein of of uh, of COVID keep, keep mutating, and so the hope is to develop uh, a, a vaccine against the parts of the COVID molecule that don't change. And, and that means they stay the same regardless of the mutation. And once you do that, you, you'll have a, an effective vaccine, which can neutralize all kinds of COVID, no matter how they mutate, you know, that researchers are working on that for, for flu shots, that there'd be a permanent flu shot instead of an annual flu shot. And, you know, uh, the messenger, the mRNA technology may help us to do that. Uh, the challenge has been it's not the messenger RNA technology that's failing. It's that it is it is being primed to attack parts of the spike protein of the of the covid uh, uh, virus particle that are mutating. And and when scientists are able to figure out how to to develop um, an mRNA vaccine that attacks the non-mutating, non-changing parts, then then you'll have then you have the beginnings of a permanent vaccine. I guess we've got a greater luck uh, when it comes to vaccine for shingles because uh, people seem to be taking the, those two shots and uh, they're not getting shingles and they're not uh, being told that well this will help you with with symptoms of shingles. They're just not getting it. Is shingles, I realize one here too, it's an apples and oranges thing, but what's the difference uh, between fighting shingles and fighting COVID? Yeah, again, it's a different technology and, and uh, it, it's, uh, you know, chicken pox has lent itself to, uh, you know, varicella zoster has, has lent itself to the development of a vaccine uh, that provides uh, antibodies. And once you have antibodies against it, it attacks the virus and keeps you from getting infected. Um, and you know we have lots of diseases like that, and so shingles is 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 a recurrence of varicella zoster, and uh, and so we have a we have a powerful weapon against that. Um, so the, the the difference is that in, in the case of varicella zoster, in the case of the shingles vaccine, it's attacking uh, a, a a part of the virus that isn't changing, and so because it isn't changing, if you attack it, um, it you know it whatever vaccine you you take now will be effective next year or the year after that. I'll get back to COVID in a second, but because we're on the shingles uh, train right now, let's just ride it uh, for a little bit more more, more track here. Um, because here, here's the question. Uh, you immediately brought up chickenpox because it, you know, it's connected. If someone is highly aware, not I think, I, I, I am speculating, if someone knows that they 
did have chicken pox as a child, and because they're alive, thankfully, uh, they developed some so-called natural immunity. Is that good for life? Does that mean they don't have to worry about shingles and, and getting a shingles vaccine? Well, it depends on 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 their experience. Um, if they if they if they didn't get chickenpox because they got the chickenpox vaccine, then they're at risk of getting of getting shingles too, and they need to get the shingles vaccine. So, in theory, because shingles is a recurrence of of a long ago chickenpox infection, um, the if you if you didn't if you weren't infected if you're certain that you weren't infected, then you're you're not going to get shingles. However, you could potentially get chickenpox. Uh, and if you are, if you have, uh, you know, a compromised immune system because you're a, a transplant patient uh, or you're on other immunosuppressive therapy, you know, because you have an autoimmune disease, for instance, then you wouldn't want to get chickenpox uh, and uh, you would want to, you'd want to be vaccinated against it. Or So I'm confident that you've had all your shots and your boosters, but, but you had COVID. What was your experience with that, uh, Dr. Goldman? Uh, it was a recent experience. I'm almost certain that I received the Parola variant, which is now starting to become become more dominant. Uh, it was, you know, it was not um, the worst illness I've had in my life, um, but it was not a cold. Um, I, I was quite fatigued. Um, I had a persistent cough for nearly four weeks, and it just suddenly cleared. I have asthma, uh, dormant asthma, and my asthma got worse, and I had to be on puffers. Uh, and uh, so, so you know, I, I can say it's it's an illness that, you know, we talk people talk about the survivorship of illnesses as if it's a badge of honor. Uh, you know, first of all, there are lots of people who would have gotten a lot sicker with the same strain that I got that I contracted. Uh, and 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 frankly, uh, by getting sick, I was unable to uh, I was unable to to work. In the emergency department for several days, I had to I had to follow protocol so I didn't infect my colleagues or risk infecting my colleagues. So that that put a burden on them. And uh, in our society, in general, at least until recently, re- reducing the burden of illness and reducing the risk of death was a was considered a worthwhile goal. And and certainly, I I, I believe in that. I continue to believe. That. Is the vaccine for the new variant available everywhere in Canada? Do you know? The vaccine? No, it is not available everywhere, and and I'm 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 quite confused because I know that Quebec, for instance, uh, Manitoba, other provinces are supposed to be rolling out their their vaccine program, so they're going to have a COVID and flu shot available uh, more or less simultaneously. And yet, we've heard from Health Canada that there have been delays in the delivery of vaccines. The Moderna one should be the one that's most likely to be available first, followed by the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine. Um, but check with your province, check with your local public health units uh, or your family doctor, nurse practitioner uh, to make sure that it is available because I know there have been some delays. I guess I'm going to ask you for a political opinion here. And it's like anything else in a free country in a freewheeling podcast conversation. You don't have to respond. Should there be a, a national law uh, that imposes upon provinces uh, the mandate to pay the pharmacists the same fee that has been paid for the last couple of years, because apparently some some provinces are, are deciding uh, they want to become miserly with the pharmacists, and my, my fear on this is that it'll it'll mean we don't have access to as much vaccine as we need. Yeah, you know that's a great point. Um, you know, I don't I don't think it's political to say that you should probably make the same fee available um, because you know under the Canada the terms of the Canada Health Act, uh, healthcare is supposed to be portable. 
and, and it should be roughly equivalent across the country. We know that in practice, that's not always the case. I know that, that for instance, British Columbia is now paying a handsome fee for family doctors to look after patients with complex needs. That fee is not the same. It's, it's much greater than fees in other provinces. And, and, uh, and you know, what they're trying to do in British Columbia is use that extra fee to attract family doctors to keep them in practice so that they don't retire or close their practices. So, so different provinces are going to do different things. Uh, that seems to be part of what makes Canada, Canada. So seeing as you don't mind being a, a little bit political, do you want to weigh in on this idea that many people have that unless we have more uh, private for-profit care, we won't be able to take care of everyone? What, what's your, your take on that? Now, that's an easy one. Uh, I am, I am four square against private for-profit health care. Now, there's a difference between that and the private delivery private provision of publicly funded services. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, we can we can certainly look at that. And there are, you know, P3, P cubed uh, 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 public private partnerships in, in, in many provinces. Um, I, but in general, if you, you know, the, the data that I've looked at tells me that having a single payer uh, provides the economies of scale that provides the best service at the least at the lowest price. Um, it it removes like and that, that doesn't mean that publicly funded health care is a panacea. There are plenty of problems with publicly funded, you know, things like emergency departments being being, uh, you know, closed for for many hours of the week or sometimes even days or even weeks at a time, which which is which is awful as an emergency physician, you know, long, not enough long term care beds, not paying nurses enough. So there are plenty of problems in the system, but th those problems will not be solved by private for profit health care. Quite the contrary. Uh, will exacerbate other problem, problems, uh, and and you'll have you'll have places where the temptation to have a, a a decreased level of care in return for higher profit would just be too great. Dr. Goldman, you're an emergency doctor. How many 24/7 fully operational emergency units are there in the city of Toronto? Would you know? Oh, I don't know offhand. I mean, I, I imagine it would be somewhere around 20 or so, but it's it, it would be of that order. The reason I'm asking is because there's been a controversy here in Manitoba, and of course the election is today. For those people who are listening or watching after October 3rd, uh, it'll be a different day, but October 3rd is when we're uh, laying this conversation down with Dr. Goldman, and October 3rd is the uh, day for the provincial election. And what's been controversial here for a number of years is some emergency care units were converted to urgent care. And the theory was this was going to be more efficient. You, you beef up uh, some of the emergency care, 24-7 emergency care centers, and if, if people need to go to them, well, they'll get the ambulance right there and most of the time in Winnipeg. Uh, that, that's, that's completely bearable. It's a much a smaller population than the city of Toronto. And, of course, we were also told the city of Toronto only has about three fully operational 24-7 emergency cares. The uh, person who's likely to become... The new premier says he wants to restore uh, the, the old way and reopen uh, those uh, three hospitals, uh, re reopen their emergency care units. Some people say that doesn't make any sense. We don't have enough doctors and nurses to, to staff them. Um, do, you, do you want to weigh in on the difference between urgent, urgent care and emergency care and whether or not it's responsible uh, to have beefed up emergency care centers and fewer uh, emergency care centers that aren't as sophisticated. When I say sophisticated, I mean 
all kinds of specialists available 24-7, specialists for the kidney, specialists for the heart, specialists for uh, for orthopedics. Well, you know, the, the answer is complicated. And the, the, first of all, not every, not every emergency department is fully serviced with every subspecialty. And, you know, my own emergency department, we don't have nephrologists, we don't have kidney specialists, we don't have neurosurgeons. And, and, but you have to have a system that allows you to either, uh, you either have a relationship with a neighboring hospital or you can call, you know, a toll-free number. Ours in Ontario is called Critical. And when we call Critical, um, you know, we present our patient to to uh, uh, the the to somebody who's on call for the service that we require, whether it's spinal surgery or nephrology, you know, or vascular surgery, etc. And and uh, they help us uh, figure out how to treat the patient. And and if the patient needs to be transferred, then they accept the patient and transfer them. Transfer them. So you have to have a system in place. So that that's the first thing I wanted to say. There's, so there, there really is no such thing as a fully serviced emergency department that does that sees that's able to take care of all things for all people all the time without without a risk of transfer. Uh, the difference between the emergency departments uh, that are that are open 24 hours and the urgent care centers is that the ur- urgent care centers close. They may have a somewhat lower level of acuity, but they should be able to handle almost everything. And and you know they're going to have a situation where closing time is going to come. And, and that means that the patient either has to be admitted to the floor in their hospital or transferred out to another place, uh, which does create some logistical problems. But the most important thing I want to say, Charles, is that, that your emergency department's function is only as good as the, as the number of personnel, as the complement of personnel. And right now we have a situation which is true not just in Manitoba, but right across the country, that nurses are underpaid. They're under stress. A lot of them are, are thinking of quitting, leaving. You know, COVID uh, didn't help them. They, they didn't get the respect that they deserved. In, in many provinces, they were, trans, they were redeployed against their will. They had to work many days in a row. This, is, this, is, this has led to emergency departments having to be closed. A lot of people think it's because the emergency position isn't available. More often than not, it's because there's a nurse. There isn't a, an appropriate complement of nurses. So whatever the number of emergency departments you're going to keep open in, in Winnipeg, for instance, or throughout the province uh, of Manitoba, they have to be properly staffed. And that means that, that all healthcare personnel who work there have to be properly paid for. And, and, and there is just there is no substitute for that. So I'm getting the impression from you that despite the fact there are many, uh, many hospitals that have an emergency ward, I'm getting the impression based on your own answer, Dr. Goldman, that there are very, very few hospitals that have the full complement of all those specialists, kidney, brain, orthopedics, et cetera. Very few of those in Toronto. That, and that is true. Like we, we all have a mixture. Some have more than others. You know, University Health Network across the street probably has more services. Toronto Western does, but they're... they're they share services over two physical sites, and they're you know they're blocks away from each other. Uh, and we have two trauma centers, Sunnybrook and and St. Mike's. The rest aren't trauma centers, which means that if you have a trauma, you're not going to go there. You're going to go to one of the other places. We have one stroke unit, uh, and uh, one, one one stroke unit in all, in all of Toronto. In all of Toronto. Well, yeah, no, it, there's one regional stroke unit in downtown Toronto. Then there's other regional stroke units. Okay. And, and the whole idea is that, is that all of the expertise is, is pooled into that one institution. The paramedics have, have the authority to bypass hospitals and to, send, to rush the patient to the nearest stroke unit, or they touch them down at our place, and then we call what's called code stroke, and we work with the uh, stroke neurologist and the nurse practitioners on the team 
who are available you know, 24 seven to answer our questions and help us manage the patient. I think it'd be impossible for any objective person to listen to this conversation without developing an even healthier respect for the paramedics working in this country. Absolutely. Yeah, they have my undying admiration and respect. Yeah. So because because people simply, no matter what community you're in, uh, in, uh, in Canada, no matter what you hear about the politics, we absolutely count on these paramedics to, to transfer people from hospital to hospital. So, Dr. Goldman, let's just uh, wrap up on the, on, the, on the business of COVID. Uh, I want to give you the, the, the microphone here. What's your message to people across the country in October of 2023 on where we're at with COVID and where they need to be with giving themselves the most amount of protection? Okay. So, you know, at this point, you know, we are way past mask mandates. We're not, nobody's going to make anybody wear a mask at this point. It's all a personal decision and there aren't going to be vaccine mandates. They're just going, it's just going to be a personal decision. So, so first of all, uh, if you are, just be aware that COVID cases are, are on the rise once again, and hospitals are starting to see more patients, admitting more patients with COVID. Uh, and very soon that will be followed by the flu and, and also respiratory syncytial virus or RSV. So the, the most effective thing that you can do is, is think about where you're going to be. If you're going to be in large indoor congregate settings, you know, the, the weather is still is nice in many parts of Canada, but it's getting colder as it gets colder. You're going to be congregating indoors with lots of other people who aren't wearing masks. And, you know, you, you're going to, you don't want to find out that they're sniffling and sneezing and coughing and hacking away and nobody's wearing a mask and you're not wearing a mask until it's too late. Better to go into one of those settings wearing a mask, and I would recommend a well-fitted N95 mask, uh, and, and, it, you know, and I would do that uh, particularly if you yourself are at risk of, of, getting, uh, of becoming very sick with COVID because you have other illnesses that put you at risk or you are you live with somebody who's immunocompromised you know for instance a frail senior or you visit a frail senior in uh, uh in in uh, in a long-term care uh and you don't want to bring COVID to them so wear a mask and for your personal protection you know keep your vaccines up to date uh in general that means six months after your last episode of COVID or your last COVID vaccine um, there are some subgroups who can have them more frequently. Also, stay tuned for, your, for when you can get your flu shot. And seniors, stay tuned for when you can get your RSV vaccine, RxV. That will be happening sometime in the next two to three or four months. Dr. Brian Goldman, uh, thank you for the great radio over the years, the, the podcasts, all the service that you've uh, provided to your patients in emergency medicine at the Sinai Health Network, and, of course, for being on the show with us today. Thank you so much. Nice to talk to you too, Charles. Brian Goldman spoke to us from uh, Toronto. I mentioned a few moments ago that he's got uh, podcasts and radio shows on the CBC. Easy to find out what all of that is about. Just go to his uh, Twitter handle, at NightShiftMD, at NightShiftMD. If you're not on uh, Twitter, just go to Google and look for Dr. Brian Goldman in uh, Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Charles Adler. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson. Twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press and every day at criermedia.co.